as this one is lined. You're listening to WCBN Sports, your official student voice of the University of Michigan. For more, check out our website at wcbnsports.com. Well, uh, it's a little after 6.30 p.m., and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley, and Jim Dwyer may be trying to find a parking spot, so we'll see if he makes it or not. But anyway, I guess we'll uh, acknowledge the men's Michigan hockey team and wish them good luck in the Frozen Four, which is this weekend. Uh, as for the NCAA final basketball game tonight, tune in. It should be a great game. You're looking at each team with several NBA-style caliber players, and uh, anybody can win tonight's game. I'm rooting for Kansas. Well, Soylent Green are people. Charlton Heston has passed away. I don't know if the Ten Commandments will ever be the same. But we need not talk about Charlton Heston, though my favorite Charlton Heston Get movie... Get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape! That's right. He's got a lot of cult films. The Chariot Scene in Ben-Hur is, is one of the classics of uh, American cinema. Both uh, the remake and the original silent uh, version, which I can't remember who was in it, but... My favorite Charlton Heston movie, real quickly, was is definitely Touch of Evil, directed by Orson Welles. Uh, it's just an outstanding uh, example of Orson Welles' brilliance as a director. And, of course, what a memorable cast. Uh, Orson Welles himself plays the corrupt sheriff. Charlton Heston plays a uh, Mexican diplomat who is uh, married to... The ever doe-eyed woman, Janet Leigh, <laughs> who uh, is in three of my all-time favorite movies, Psycho, Touch of Evil, and The Manchurian Candidate. Uh, so I recommend Touch of Evil if you want to see a good Charlton Heston movie. And it was interesting to note that uh, today's uh, art section of the New York Times paid a little homage to the the fact that Charlton Heston backed Wells up, as well as some other directors that got into trouble uh, with the Hollywood studios, including Sam Peckinpah, who apparently was hitting the bottle rather heavily in one of those Charlton Heston movies. I can't remember which one that was, but uh, despite the fact that he uh, held uh, very conservative political positions and uh, is best remembered in his later years for heading the NRA... Uh, he was a good guy, and certainly <laughs> uh, a sort of prototypical leading man uh, with that physique and the jaw and the <laughs> the teeth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this week, the um, media, of course, will be focused on the testimony of uh, General Petraeus and the uh, surge which can only be described as uh, a 
temporary success. I think there are uh, there's some obvious uh, problems uh, in recent weeks. Uh, this uh, offensive into uh, the Basra area by uh, the Maliki government has obviously ended in a little bit of uh, failure, sort of a stampede, uh, sort of a Tet Offensive that may, as George Bush noted, mark a turning point. Well, it's certainly not going to mark a turning point for the success of the so-called surge, and as we've noted before, the surge is a little bit of a myth. Uh, it's just American troops have replaced other coalition forces, and certainly the strategy of Petraeus in terms of focusing on Baghdad um, has shown some improvement, but obviously in Recent days, things are, to say the least, fragile. That is the word that I keep hearing reporters on the ground uh, using. And once again, I would recommend um, the British journalist Patrick Coburn, uh, who has an upcoming book entitled uh, Muqtada, Muqtada al-Sadr, the Shia Revival and the Struggle for Iraq, which is out uh, Basically, this month may even already be on the shelves from Scribner. He's got a piece in the most recent nation, the uh, fine left-wing magazine, uh, the April 21st edition, in which he talks about the problems with the surge. So I'll quote a couple of uh, paragraphs from him. Patrick Coburn also had a very fine article in... Uh, the London Review of Books several weeks ago uh, that talks a little bit about this uh, Shia awakening and the tentative problems with the uh, ceasefire there and how the United States is literally throwing tons of money around to temporarily buy some peace. But as Thomas Ricks, the Washington Post military expert, notes, uh, we don't know whose side some of these people are ultimately going to be on and as he put it quite well in one of the frontline documentaries, it would seem that once the United States finally leaves Iraq, whenever that may be, I doubt we'll be there a hundred years. But I guess you never know. <laughs> if we stay a hundred years in Iraq, uh, we will be bankrupt. Uh, and uh, it will, of course, reflect the moral bankruptcy of the original war policy to begin with. But in quoting from the Nation article by Patrick Coburn, as uh, Jim Dwyer's just joined us, he writes, I was in Baghdad in March and April of 2004 when U.S. Envoy Paul Bremer, uh, read uh, Viceroy there, closed down Sadr's uh, paper, Al Harzwa, and denounced him as a, quote, rabble-rousing cleric and compared him to Hitler. Iraqi ministers were told to refer not to the Mahdi army, but to Maqtada's militia. Ali Alawi, a highly intelligent Iraqi government minister, tried to explain to Bremer that Sadr was important because he represented the millions of poor Shiites whose lives had been ruined by Saddam's wars and because of the destruction of the Iraqi economy by UN sanctions. Bremer reported, quote, he didn't care a damn about the underclass and what the Sadrists represented, unquote. And, of course, we've seen an offensive in the Sadr city area today uh, in which 
apparently a number of American troops have died once again. And April is actually shaping up to be a kind of devastating month, uh, possibly for the American um, surge, quote-unquote. And as um, Coburn continues about this little offensive that the Maliki government undertook the six-day, quote-unquote, Tet Offensive, uh, he notes, the four years later, the Iraq government's decision to challenge the Sadrist has produced military failure even more complete, illustrating the real distribution of political and military power in Iraq. A compromise was brokered by Iran, with senior Iraqi lawmakers traveling to the holy city, the Iranian holy city of Qom, to see Sadr, who was pursuing his religious studies there. Astonishingly, they also held talks with Brigadier General Qasem Sulaimani, the commander of the Quds Brigades of Iran's Revolutionary Guards, the organization much denounced by Bush as sinister uh, and behind much of the trouble in Iraq. It is a marvelous piece of mistiming and misjudgment that Roman Martinez and Dan Senor and maybe Senner, I'm not sure, who was Bremer's spokesman during the disastrous confrontation with Sadr in 2004, an experience that apparently taught him nothing, published an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal on March 20th, Wall Street Journal owned by Rupert Murdoch, we should emphasize, quote, whatever happened to Muqtada, unquote. <laughs> in words that were to be disproven, Within days of their publications, the authors explained the factors that, quote, contributed to Sadr's marginalization and asserted that a full implementation of the surge helped weaken Sadr, not make him more popular, quote, unquote. A week later, Maqtada al-Sadr's forces had faced down the Iraqi army and were in control of three-quarters of Basra and half of Baghdad. So it'll be very interesting to see how Petraeus testifies before Congress this week, uh, given these recent events that seem to have taken a little bit of the glimmer and glean and sheen of success that we've heard so much that presidential candidate John McCain has been crowing about. Well, the comments from Bremer about the, you know, assets and street credibility and so forth and, and reputation of Maqtada al-Sadr uh, display not only an ignorance uh, about Iraqi demographics and, you know, societal uh, structure, but also a pretty shocking ignorance about America's past involvement in the first Gulf War, where, of course, after uh, we bid a hasty departure, uh, having flushed uh, Saddam's forces out of Kuwait, uh, when the Shia population in the southern part of Iraq was encouraged to rebel, and indeed did so, uh, with the promise, illusory as it turned, of support, uh, military support and, uh, you know, supplies uh, from the forces, the anti-Saddam forces of the West, who of course had, uh, up until that point of uh, Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, fully supported him, uh, the net winner in all of our uh, misadventures in Iraq is, yet again, the, the Shia and Iran. And uh, Bremer never really 
seemed to have a clue what was going on. And uh, his departure was uh, too little too late. Why he was on the team, it never really made sense. Well, that was one of the classic zigzags uh, that the Bush administration made uh, in the early months of uh, declaring victory uh, was, you know, initially putting in Jay Garner, who had, right. was, it was actually a credible humanitarian, uh, shall we say, apparatchik. Um, but he was quickly replaced by Paul Bremer just days after Bush had the mission accomplished stunt uh, over there in the Bay of, uh, well, it wasn't in the Bay of Bengal, but it may as well have been. <laughs> um, of course, uh, it emphasizes the complex problems in Iraq. And, of course, recently uh, the Associated Press uh, had some statistics on the Sunni violence uh, in Iraq, noting that most of the um, suicide bombers are, have come from Saudi Arabia, home of the 9-11 hijackers. And according to the summary obtained by the Associated Press, and this is dated the 16th of March, interrogators concluded that most foreign fighters are Sunni Muslim men from 18 to 30 with a mean age of 22. They are almost always single males with no children and tend to be students who hold blue-collar jobs ranging from taxi drivers to construction and retail sales. <laughs> yeah. I wonder uh, what kind of Walmarts these guys work in. <laughs> uh, according to the National Counterterrorism Center, continuing from the AP article, in Washington, 945 suicide bombers have killed 10,119 people and wounded 23,000 from the beginning of 2004. Data compiled by the AP through its own reporting found that between April 28th of 2004 and March 13th of 2008, there were 708 incidents involving suicide bombings in which a total of 14,000 Iraqis were wounded and 7,098 killed. So this gives you an idea of how complicated Iraq actually is and how misguided uh, the adventure, which uh, was a word that Gerhard Schroeder used to uh, denounce the invasion of Iraq by America, has turned out to be. That is called asymmetrical warfare. And it will be very interesting to hear if General Petraeus is asked questions about the nature of asymmetrical warfare. Petraeus, to his credit, is a massive improvement over previous viceroys, uh, like Paul Bremer and his previous uh, Ricardo Sanchez and uh, General Casey. I can't remember his. I think it was George Casey, uh, who were both uh, clueless. Petraeus does have some understanding of the big picture, and we can say that there has been success, but... It's fragile, it's probably temporary, and of course it will involve tens of billions of more American dollars and probably hundreds and hundreds of American soldiers' lives, and it is unsustainable. John McCain. Yeah, one wonders if John McCain, uh, certainly, of course, he, he was in Vietnam, he was tortured, he was a prisoner of war. But you wonder if he's ever seen Full Metal Jacket. 
<coughs> it might be a time to plop down in front of a newly remastered edition of that uh, film, which still speaks volumes today about America's military crisis. Yeah, and it's <coughs> interesting because Full Metal Jacket, at least the second half of the movie, uh, deals with elliptically the Tet Offensive. Yep. Um, and demonstrates the problems that any imperialistic power or concept of warfare has in trying to quell uh, the indigenous population. It's a messy business, and um, America has ample experience in the problems with this. Uh, I would once again urge people that are interested to read some of the early history of America's problems in uh, the Philippines mm. uh, that were connected to the Spanish-American War, which really turned is the beginning chapter in American imperialism. Uh, the war Very of, much so. The War of 1898, the so-called Spanish-American War. The United States was in the Philippines for 25 years and uh, had difficulty for quite some time. And, of course, other areas where the, uh, shall we say, indigenous people were being massacred include Cuba, which uh, explain um, the... Uh, the situation uh, in Cuba today. So I th hope that there's reality on the surge. I am relatively confident that General Petraeus will testify accurately about the, the real problems. Not, he's not going to be a, uh, a Condoleezza Rice who uh, was called by John McCain. I think she's a great American... I think there's very little that I can say that isn't anything but the utmost praise for a great American citizen who served as a role model to so many millions of American people, uh, so many millions of people in this country and around the world. Her overall record is very, very meritorious. What wow. in the world is he talking about? Her wardrobe? I have no idea. Uh, Condoleezza Rice is actually one of the most incompetent top-level officials that the American government has ever seen. And this, of course, is a quote that emerged from rumors that um, she's somehow gunning to be on the, you know, the, the presidential ticket with McCain. Wow, if he picks her. Oh. <laughs> Good Lord. Well, there are, you know, you see some bumper stickers around town, you know, from like a couple of years back now, uh, Condi in 08. Uh, one doesn't really know where to begin uh, responding to such a uh, supposition. Yeah, I mean, dissecting her tenure as national security advisor, it, uh, it's just stunning. I mean, the, 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 the history books are almost universal and noting that she had no control over the National Security Council. She was unable to resolve disputes between Powell and uh, Rumsfeld. She didn't know what to do. She basically functioned as a sort of secretary for George Bush and a briefer, you know, to clue him in into who the prime minister of Pakistan is. And, of course, she was in charge of America's national security before 9-11 when she for some reason, um, didn't regard the bin Laden threat as credible credible, and was more concerned about China and Soviet relations. 
or well, of course, Russian so, relations. Yeah, Soviet matters is was her area of expertise as a former uh, oil corporation executive. Um, she is the uh, highest ranking American official to have an oil tanker named after them. Uh, and she's done a lot of shuttle diplomacy to the Middle East, but I don't see any results whatsoever other than more settlements, more what? roads, yeah. and pr probably, in, in many respects, a worse Palestinian-Israeli um, situation, if you want to call it that, <laughs> that existed before she came into power. So yeah. her Middle East diplomacy is a big zilch. And the fact that uh, Israel announced the uh, construction of new settlements while she was there mm -hmm. shows what little regard they hold her in. Of course, you know, it, it could be argued that, uh, that they've been uh, driving uh, American foreign policy in the region, but uh, the announcement is startling, um, especially when, you know, this is her quote, Condoleezza Rice says, we continue to state America's position that settlement activity should stop, that its expansion should stop, that it is indeed not consistent with roadmap obligations. Well, the roadmap is off the map. There's been very little attention to the uh, concerns uh, promulgated in that attempt at negotiating a peace. And uh, why doesn't she just say, as I'm sure she has the authority to do, okay, America's position is that the settlements are against the peace process. Uh, of course they're against international law, but that's an embarrassing topic for a Bush administration official to raise. Uh, but certainly America's in a position to do something about the settlement process. If it is something that should stop, well, maybe there's some other things that should stop, like America's uh, $3 billion-plus uh, per annum expenditure to Israel. Well, they certainly can put more pressure on Israel than mm -hmm. they are, and one of the reasons they don't put any pressure on Israel is that the Israeli leadership in recent years has been dominated by Likud, which has essentially got the same concepts of world dominion that the Bush administration has, that the... Uh, Reagan administration had. Um, it goes on and on. Um, Bush's father, in fact, James Baker, was really one of the few indeed, top officials in American history that has ever really put any pressure on Israel yeah, they, uh, to change policies. And that was for what the, compelled Israel to uh, meet in Madrid after the first Gulf War. Yeah. As was Baker saying, okay, no more funding. As for, as for the roadmap to peace, I'm afraid that's been Googled in the... <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, master plan for annexing the entire West Bank. Yeah, but there are now uh, plans for 600 new housing units on a settlement outside of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Peace Now, which tracks settlement buildings, said in a report that Israel had approved the building of about 1,700 new housing units. All of this on occupied land. This is clearly illegal. This is clearly uh, a detriment to any peace process. Um, it's really shocking that this was said and announced while she was there. Yeah, and, and one other final example of Condoleezza Rice's incompetence is the whole, her testimony before Congress regarding the Blackwater business back in the mm. fall of uh, 2007. I mean, talk about astonishing incompetence and unawareness of her job description, uh, because Blackwater ostensibly is part of the State Department's um, security uh, 
contractual arrangements uh, in Iraq. And, of course, the, le- the head of the Blackwater Corporation has all sorts of very close ties to top uh, Republican politicians all across the country and uh, seem to provide a lot of campaign funding in exchange for billions of dollars of contracts that are given to them under no-bid situations. So if Condoleezza Rice is being considered as a VP nominee for John McCain... McCain's even crazier than we thought. (laughs) Well, the thing is, she's been allegedly campaigning for this herself. Uh, Whatever. Apparently, in her mind... That's the next logical promotion that she deserves uh, after going from a sort of junior national security advisor back in the 80s to Mm -hmm. an assistant under Bush 1 to national security advisor head head of chief under Bush 2 to now secretary of state. It's interesting, by the way, that shortly after the 2004 election, Bush's solution to the Rumsfeld Powell problem was not to resolve it in any substantive way, but to promote Condoleezza Rice into Powell's job with Rumsfeld surviving. Mm -hmm. And the entire debate about, you know, Rumsfeld, to his credit, as incompetent as he was, (laughs) actually wanted to get out of Iraq. Yeah. But something was keeping us there. There's this mysterious hand behind the you know, the Wizard of Oz sort of thing, the pay no attention to the man behind the curtain problem. Uh, and, of course, uh, we know that Dick Cheney had other ideas, as well as Condoleezza Rice, because it seems that the original appointment of of uh, Viceroy Bremer was orchestrated by Karl Rove and Condoleezza Rice in the White House, and it was a sort of a... Uh, attempt to put a very, uh, I don't know, public relations spin on the, at the time, what what they believed would be a successful occupation of Iraq. In that outstanding documentary on Frontline that I recommend, one military expert noted that how the United States thought it could control Baghdad with 7,000 troops when Saddam had used a quarter of a million is an example of how clueless the entire post-war planning was. And one would think that Condoleezza Rice, as national security advisor, would have been in charge of something like that, at least sorting out the, the various scenarios. And we know what happened to those military leaders that weren't on the team. Well, they weren't called haters by the Bush administration. They were forced to resign. It was Shinseki who said, we are going to need a quarter of a million troops to 300,000 troops to control Iraq. Rumsfeld and Rice and Cheney and Wolfie and all these conservatives. And I hate this distinction now that we're beginning to hear uh, in this uh, this current presidential race that it's somehow not the conservatives that were behind this war, that it was, quote, the neoconservatives, that there's a distinction. Yes, there were some conservatives that um, questioned the wisdom of going into Iraq. But uh, 
they weren't that numerous, and they didn't hold any sway. Cheney, Rumsfeld, Bush, Rice, etc., are conservatives. This is a conservative mindset that uh, relates to this thing that we talked about last week, where Karl Rove saw 9-11 as a, quote, opportunity. Mm-hmm. Opportunity for what? <laughs> World domination. Madness and mischief. And by the way, just to illustrate how... Uh, close the ties are between Blackwater and Bush administration officials. Bush recently hired Fred Fielding, Blackwater's former lawyer, to replace Harriet Myers mm-hmm. as his top lawyer. And by the way, this comes from the Project Censored, uh, Top 25 Censored Stories of 2006-2007. This has just recently been published, and I'm working my way through it. Um, as usual, there's some startling things in here. Uh, some of which uh, we've talked about on Gray Matters, others uh, we will talk about. Uh, another bizarre, beneath-the-radar uh, aspect of uh, Blackwater, appropriately named, Yeah. dark, murky surface there, uh, concealing much unpleasantness uh, beneath. The concept being have a name that contrasts with Whitewater. <laughs> mm-hmm. In, yeah, no yeah, doubt. Right. Um, Let's see. Blackwater is currently in negotiation with the Southern Sudanese regional government to start training Christian militias in Sudan. That's just what that beleaguered nation needs. Yeah. Is uh, more so-called faith-based militia rivalries. Um, One can only uh, fear the worst there. And, of course, another interesting story making the top 10 of the uh, 25 censored stories is the increasing, uh, well, human traffic builds U.S. embassy in Iraq. There's a lot of interesting evidence of uh, slavery-type labor conditions there. Uh, The Southeast Asian uh, folks having their passports, uh, workers having their passports passports confiscated, and uh, pretty much they're there. Well, yeah, there's there's actually been reports of, of some of the, quote, private contractors literally shanghaiing these people. Yes. I mean, this is an old imperialistic phrase from Britain um, and their doings and whatnot in China. But, but the, you know, the, the, the concept of impressment, which is part of the War of 1812, um, you know, where they would confiscate sailors off boats to serve in the... Uh, um, British Navy and uh, God knows what sort of places. So, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. And this one uh, I think we'll be looking at in the near future as we come near the end of the hour. We're actually at the top of the hour, so you're listening to WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor. I think Yazoo City Calling is uh, on the way. Um, story number three in Project Censored's Top 25, uh, AFRICOM, U.S. Military Control of Africa's Resources. Uh, in February 07, the White House announced the formation of a U.S. African Command. Uh, now, of course, Africa is one of the least covered continents in the world. And uh, when there is coverage of Africa, it's typically uh, human catastrophe, uh, corruption, conflicts uh, within countries. Uh, but uh, interestingly, it's still a very resource-rich continent. And, uh, of course, Pat Robertson knows that. He's been mining gold and diamonds from the uh, the the dark core of Africa for decades now. But uh, AFRICOM's mission is to uh, expedite 
the harvesting of said resources. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, 